So welcome to the History of Software podcast. My name is Podrick Coffey and I am CEO of Zartis, uh, a software company and a historian in terms of my academic background. We're launching this podcast because we can't find one that covers the evolution of software uh, from a historical perspective. And the reality is that software is changing the world in very powerful ways. And to really understand what software is doing to the world, we need to understand where it comes from. We're hoping this podcast will be interesting for engineers, for historians, anyone working in or interested in tech. This week, I'm joined by Antonio Reher, who is a tech lead at Zartis. He's also passionate about history and an all around nice guy. This is our first podcast, and we're going to focus on the origin story of software. Where did it come from? Who were the key people? And what were their stories? We're interested in the technology itself and in the people behind the tech. So, uh, so Antonio, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Padraig? I'm pretty good. I'm uh, excited about this podcast. Uh, so we'll see, see where it takes us. Okay, so our first question is, who invented software? Um, Antonio, as the, uh, as the engineering expert on the podcast today, how would you answer that question? Um, I'd say it's um, mostly a collaborative effort, like everything in science. Um, so I couldn't put my finger at one person. Um, I do think most of these things grow out of uh, lots of smart people thinking at the same time about the same problems. And, uh, and in this case, there are a few visible faces uh, and names. But in general, it's just normal people solving problems, I think. I think maybe an interesting character to start with might be Alan Turing. So uh, experts would probably posit that the first modern theory of software was proposed by Turing in 1935. He wrote an essay called Computable Numbers with an Application to the Entscheidungs Problem or Decision Problem. And uh, Turing was a very interesting character he's credited with helping shorten world war ii by two years and saving more than 10 million lives by doing so and how did he do that well he led a, a military intelligence unit called hut 8 which was responsible for cracking encryption on messages sent by the nazi naval forces and this was particularly important in handing the advantage to the Allied forces in the Battle of the Atlantic. Turing's, uh, Turing is sometimes referred to as the father of theoretical computer science and artificial intelligence. Uh, as many people will know, I think there's been some movies made about his life and there's a number of books about Turing. Uh, have you come across Turing a lot in your own reading? Antonio. There's some interesting points about, about him. Um, well, first off, uh, HUD-8 was part of the uh, Bletchley Park project, um, and uh, which was a bunch of very smart people, again, uh, working on, on similar problems. And interesting fact about that is that uh, when I 
I lived in Cambridge for a couple of years, uh, sorry, a couple months, um, maybe 35 years ago. And I met a man called Peter Laslett, who was also uh, part of Bletchley Park, a uh, social historian. So they just had um, a bunch of people working there trying to solve, you know, basically the Enigma code. And, um, and I think it's, it's something that's not done anymore, just having uh, smart people from various backgrounds uh, trying to put their heads together um, and figuring out a problem. Now, there are other people that we should mention about the, in the story because um, this would not have been possible if the Allies hadn't been able to recover uh, Enigma machines. And this happened in the uh, Mediterranean, in the battle in, um, in the Mediterranean uh, with U-Boat uh, U-559, which uh, was not uh, successfully scuttled by, the, by its crew after being hit by depth charges. And two sailors went into the U-boat uh, to rescue the Enigma machines and uh, drowned as the submarine sank. So, I mean, not just uh, mathematicians and engineers are, uh, are heroes in the story, I guess. Um, but it's interesting how um, when a government sets its goal as finding a solution for a problem, many times it happens. It's really interesting. Um, so those sailors got onto the U-boat, managed to get their hands on the Enigma machine, surface it, and then they went down with the U-boat, right? That's right. They got the, uh, I think, I don't know if it was one or two Enigma machines and also some code books. we can go back to the 19th century and it'd be good to consider the impact of Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace. They're both two very, very interesting characters. So if we look at Charles Babbage first, uh, he was one of the last polymaths. So he was an engineer, a philosopher, mathematician, an economist. He was a co-founder of the Royal Astronomical Society. He was a Cambridge professor. He was a rich dude. <laughs> um, According to Jack Copeland's book, The Modern History of Computing, all the essential ideas of modern computers are to be found in Babbage's analytical machine, or analytical engine, I should say. So the analytical engine was a proposed design for a mechanical general purpose computer. And there was actually a completed version of this design created in 1991, which showed that his original design worked and was capable uh, of being created in the 19th century what, what was known and available at the time and actually you know could have actually worked so so good man Charles you knew what you were doing um have you come across Babbage before Antonio um slightly um I know a bit of his his, his story uh what's very particular about his uh um analytical engine is that it wasn't just an adding machine or subtracting machine it was actually programmable um and that's what that's why he's credited as being, you know, have an idea of a programmable computer, right? Um, interestingly, too, he was uh, funded by the, by, the, by the British government uh, for building this machine, uh, but uh, ran out of funding after receiving 17,000 pounds at that time. Again, the 19th century is um, very, very uh, interesting for the history of science in general. It's the basis of everything we know now. Um, and without the advances that happened then, we would be we wouldn't have what we have now. Obviously, um, not just not just computing, but also physics, uh, chemistry, math, 
in all areas. Yeah, very interesting. So even in the 19th century, technology projects were running over budget. Yeah, that's so it seems. <laughs> but then, then the UK government, or the UK government, the British government uh, decided they uh, lost their interest in them and stopped funding him. <laughs> so, yeah, things don't change sometimes. Ada Lovelace is a fascinating character. So she is, uh, she was a British mathematician and uh, a lot of credit can definitely go her way for advances in the world of, of software and computing. So she built on Babbage's work and created the first algorithm intended for use on his analytical engine. And this might make her the world's first computer programmer. Um, so like these 19th century British geeks are, are they're really fascinating people. Uh, like Ada Lovelace was the only legitimate child of the poet Lord Byron. It seems he uh, fathered quite a number of children um, outside of wedlock and, uh, you know, he had his, uh, he had his particular style, I suppose, uh, which included leaving his wife uh, when Ada was one month old and then lift, left Britain forever. Um, it's surmised that Ada's mother pushed her towards science and mathematics due to being slightly embittered about all things pertaining to the humanities and poetry and due to how she was treated at the hands of, uh, of Lord Byron. She was a real visionary in that she could conceive of the possibilities for computers beyond just calculations. So there's, a, there's an interesting quote from her. Um, Supposing, for instance, that the fundamental relations of pitch sounds in the science of harmony and of musical composition were susceptible of such expression and adaptations, the engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent. So I guess, like, you know, having that visionary quality and being able to see the capacity for computers to generate music. I mean, that's, it's really fascinating to think that back in the 19th century, there was uh, people thinking about these possibilities when, you know, it's only in very recent decades that people actually are there with their hands on trying to actually make this stuff happen. Uh, tell me about Ada Lovelace from your perspective. Is, is she someone that you would have learned about in, in your reading, in your training? In, like, do they teach the history of computer science when you are studying computer science in Spain? Um, well, um, I can't answer to that. Uh, my formate, um, I'm actually a chemist, uh, so I studied chemistry, and um, and I didn't have any formal uh, engineering um, education, so I, I I don't really know. I don't think so. I think there's uh, basic introductions, maybe have some historical aspect to them, but I don't think in general there's much of a interest in in the history of these things. And we, all, I mean. I think it's very important to know the history because if you know the mental process that drives uh, certain uh, reasonings, you understand it better. It's the only way to understand it. Um, so Edda Lovelace, I got to admit, did not know much about until recently. Um, she is credited with the first program for the analytical engine um, and with a bunch of other stuff I was reading up on her uh, her books and her and her articles and it's pretty impressive um one thing to note is that she died when she was 36 uh of cancer and uh, uh that she died also not too long after marrying uh and that 
on her deathbed, she was taken care of by her mom. And uh, her mom made her um, embrace the church again and everything uh, and, uh, and renounce her um, beliefs in, in science and stuff. That's what I've read, at least, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, also, being so productive before you're 36. I mean, when I was 36, <laughs> really, <laughs> I wasn't productive. <laughs> well, you're making up for last time now, I'm sure. Next week, we're going to look at the post-World War II evolution of software development, um, how this was shaped in many cases by Cold War considerations. We're going to look at what advances were made, why and by whom. Uh, and for now, I'd like to thank Antonio for joining us today and for his contribution and to Nick Brennan for producing this podcast. So this is our first History of Software podcast. We hope there'll be many more to come. And thank you for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Padraig, for a great idea. All right. Take care.